The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Father, we thank you that we can come to you this morning and study your word, that it is your word that illuminates our thinking, it is your word that illuminates every area of our life, every arena of our activity, whether it is our intellectual life or our vocational life or our family life, that it is your word that shines light upon those areas so that we can look upon them, that we can face them in the reality of how they are and the reality of how they should be under your viewpoint. And may we have the courage and the willingness to submit our will to your will and to apply doctrine in these arenas so that we can bring them under the uh, domination of Bible doctrine. Now, Father, as we study your word, we pray that God the Holy Spirit would make these things clear to us so that we can apply them in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. When we studied this last time, we saw that freedom is an integral concept in the Scriptures. And in the Scripture, the focus on freedom or liberty, which is perhaps a better translation, is not on political liberty or physical liberty, but is on the priority of spiritual freedom and spiritual liberty. For if we do not have spiritual freedom... If we do not have certain things in our souls as a result of spiritual truth and establishment doctrine, then we will not have a capacity for any sort of physical or political freedom. And this has been displayed throughout human history that the only nations in the history of mankind that have really demonstrated any degree of true political, economic, and physical freedom for its citizens is in the English-speaking countries. And that can be traced directly to the impact of Reformation doctrine, especially as it came to fruition in the 19th century in the British Empire and also in the United States of America from the uh, time of the First Great Awakening on. It's interesting if you can picture in your mind a little challenge this early in the morning, but draw in your mind a mental picture of a map of the world. And if you draw a line, and that line would come down about halfway across Russia, down through the Middle East and across North Africa, everything to the east of that, most of Africa, middle, the Middle East and Asia, would be nations and countries and cultures that have had uh, little, if any, significant impact from doctrine. Those countries have never known any concept of freedom as we know in this country. What makes the difference is that east of that line, there's been no impact from Christianity. West of that line, you've had an impact from Christianity. Now, west of that line, you can make another distinction. You can draw a line across about half of Germany down to uh, the Austrian border, then across and France is kind of mixed up. There was a little impact from Reformation, but mostly the countries we're talking about would be uh, Scandinavian countries, Holland, 
Germany, and then the, the uh, British Empire. Those countries were significantly impacted by Reformation truth, which is more biblical than that which impacted the Roman Catholic countries and the Eastern Orthodox countries in the eastern part of, of, of Europe. So you have a greater degree of political and economic freedom in those countries. It's no coincidence that the nations that have had the greatest economic advance, the greatest uh, development of industry, the, the greatest development of political and personal freedoms have been those countries affected by Reformation truth as opposed to those that stayed under the hegemony of Roman Catholic theology. Then if you take those Protestant countries and you draw another line between those nations and cultures that had a tremendous degree of freedom, you separate the English-speaking countries from the rest. Because in England and in the United States of America, in the, in the colonies first and then in the, in the U.S., you had the greatest root of the gospel took the greatest root and produced the greatest fruit in terms of working itself out most consistently in terms of every aspect of the culture. And I think that's just a, uh, an easy explanation to show theology really makes a difference in the way it impacts culture and the way it impacts people. Now, that, that is not to say that all of the people in those countries and in those cultures were believers because that's not true. But whether they were believer or unbeliever, they were, their thinking, their ideology was radically impacted by the intellectual elite following the Reformation, who were men of doctrine, who were men who understood the Scriptures, and who were men who were seriously intent on taking the Word of God and seeing that it did address every arena of thinking in, in man's life and tried to apply doctrine to economics, to politics, to art, to music, into every endeavor in, in human life. And the result is that we see that those countries that had the greatest positive volition were those that developed the greatest capacity for freedom and were the ones that developed the greatest freedom in human history. The reason is that doctrine makes a difference, that doctrine changes the way people think. It builds their capacity and it builds a yearning for freedom. Without doctrine, without that understanding first and foremost, of the spiritual issues, you cannot have freedom. And that was our subject last time as we explored the importance of spiritual freedom as the precedent for appreciation for, for uh, physical, economic, political freedom. Now, I want to read the remainder of this chapter. So I, want to, I don't want us to lose sight of Paul's train of thought here at the end of Galatians 5, for this is crucial. I think this is one of the most important passages for us to understand in all of the scriptures. For in here, in these verses, we will see the essence of the dynamics for living the spiritual life, something that very few people uh, teach and understand today. They use the terminology, they use the verbiage, but in terms of really working out the implications of what's here, you rarely find that. And I'm going to annotate as we read, because I want you to I want to highlight some key words that we're going to see because it's no chance. This is not just some uh, strange coincidence that the Apostle Paul chose the vocabulary he chooses in this section. For you are called to freedom. First key word, freedom. You were called to freedom, brethren. 
Only do not, do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. Second key word, the term flesh refers here to the sin nature and through this passage refers to the sin nature. Do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for, for the flesh, but through love serve one another. There's your second and third, or your third and fourth key words, love and service. That's going to set a real thematic structure down through 610. This sets the tone. In contrast to self-centered arrogance, which is the result of the sin nature control of the soul, there is love through serving one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care lest you be consumed by one another. But I say walk by means of the Spirit. This is your, what? about fifth key phrase, walking by means of the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Now, what I want you to pay attention to in this whole section is the continual contrast that the Apostle Paul is setting up for us. Notice how he contrasts freedom versus slavery, then the flesh versus love and serving one another, selfishness versus service. Then you see the positive command in verse 14, and the contrast of gossip, uh, statements of running down other people, uh, malignant comments, slander, libel, verse, in verse 15. Now we have another contrast, walking by the Spirit and carrying out the desire of the flesh. And this is then going to be elucidated in the following verses. For the flesh, that is the sin nature, sets its desire against the Spirit in the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, and you are, it's first class condition, you are not under the law. So again, we have this contrast between the Spirit and the law. The Spirit is also love versus the uh, flesh. So we all of these categories are going to flow together. We'll develop it slowly as we go, but I just want to paint this broad picture now so you understand the dynamics. If you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice these things, such things, shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Here's the next important concept, inheritance. Our inheritance in heaven. Verse 22, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, and that's again a first-class condition, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by means of the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Okay, we'll stop there. I wanted to make that, this is kind of an opening general study of this passage because we want to tie together these concepts, freedom. Serving one another through love. 
walking by means of the Spirit and inheriting the kingdom of God. These terms set the theme, the thematic structure for what Paul is saying to us as believers in the church age. Now, how does this fit into the spiritual life is one question we need to ask. But I think a broader question we need to ask is how does this fit within the overall plan and purposes of God? We need to remind ourselves of some basic things regarding the angelic conflict. So let's go back and set the context here so we can see why this is important within the plan of God. Because in these passages, we are going to see that nothing is more important in your life and my life than to advance to spiritual maturity, to come to a level of spiritual maturity where we can fulfill the mandate of verse 13, serving one another in love through impersonal or unconditional love. And that exemplifies, as I've said before, the mature spiritual life. And it is in fulfillment of this level of spiritual growth that we have and will have inheritance in the kingdom. Now, before time began, God created an order of rational creatures called angels. Why God created the angels is not revealed to us, and we can't speculate on that. In fact, there is much that more that is more is not revealed than is revealed about God's original creation. Now, the angels were first of all an order of rational creatures. Secondly, these creatures did not propagate, so each was created individually. They did not marry. They were not given in marriage. They did not procreate so that each angel is an individual creation of God. Third, the number of angels is myriad upon myriads, according to the Scripture, which is just a figure of speech for saying probably uh, millions, if not billions, of angels. Now, these angels were all created with volition. They are not created in the image of God, as man is created in the image of God. They are supernatural creatures, but they are, and their bodies or body are immaterial. They are probably composed of light. That's a theological deduction from uh, the highest of, the name for the highest of all the angels, which was Lucifer, the bright and morning star. Lucifer, according to uh, two critical passages in the Old Testament to understand his role in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 was a cherub. This is not some little baby with wings as it's pictured in Renaissance art, but a cherub was an awesome creature described in the first chapter of Ezekiel. It had four wings and their, their head had four faces powerful creature, and he was the highest of all the creatures. He was the most beautiful of all, of all the creatures that God created. He is the most intelligent of all the cre- creatures that God ever created, and he is the most powerful of all the creatures God ever created. Yet he is not omnipotent, he is not omnipresent, and he is not omni- omniscient. As any creature, he has to learn. And he had specific roles and responsibilities in relationship to the person of God and the throne room of God. He was God's personal 
uh, personal guard in the throne room of God. And I think that it is inferred by the terminology used in Ezekiel chapter 28 that he played a crucial role in relationship to the rest of the angels, something that we might call a priest. He is called the anointed cherub who covered. Now, that word anointed in the Hebrew is Mashiach. It is the same word that is transliterated Messiah and means Christ. Now, this does not mean that he was Christ. It simply means that he had an anointed function, and that function probably related to the worship of the angels. Let's turn, hold your place here in Galatians, and let's turn back to Ezekiel chapter 28 for just a minute. Ezekiel chapter 28. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Beginning in verse 11, Again the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says Yahweh Elohim. Now, the reason we can say that the king of Tyre in this passage is not a human figure is because there's a contrast in the chapter. In the first ten verses, there's a lamentation taken up against the leader of Tyre, who is the human king of Tyre. And this is a lamentation taken up against the king that is the spiritual power behind the human authority in Tyre. What is said about the king of Tyre in verses 11 down through 17 cannot, or really down through about 19, cannot be said of any human being. So it must be a statement to the power behind the throne, which in this case is Satan. Thus says the Lord God, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. This is poetry. The image, it uses a lot of imagery, a lot of metaphor. This full of wisdom and perfect in beauty indicates that of all the creatures God ever made, this creature is the highest. You are in Eden. This is a statement, not the Garden of Eden in terms of the physical Eden on planet Earth where God set Adam and Eve, but this was a special place. It was probably planet Earth prior to Genesis 1-2. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the lapis, uh, lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald, and the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you on the day that you were created. Now, the interesting thing is all of these stones are similar to the stones that are set in the breastplate of the high priest of Israel. So that's our first clue that there's something about this creature that is priestly. Verse 14, you were the anointed cherub who covers... The term for cover there is a term that is also used for atonement. That's a priestly function. He is the anointed one, the Mashiach cherub. So that means that indicates a high function. So from all of this, we infer that this creature had a priestly function. Now, let's read on. You were on the holy mountain of God, that is the third heaven, which is the throne room of God. 
You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. So Lucifer was created perfect with plus R, but he had volition. And because of volition, he ultimately went negative and chose against God. And unrighteousness, or sin, was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence. Now, this is a metaphor that picks up on the the nature of Tyre as a commercial center and a port city. There was a tremendous amount of trade going in and out of Tyre, and so there is an analogy made between the citizens of Tyre, who were very proud of their uh, position commercially and all of the trade that went in and out of their port, and this creature who became arrogant because of the trade that went through him. Now, what was the nature of this trade? What went through him? was worship. It was the adulation of all of the other creatures went through him to God. And he got basically became tired of conveying this worship to God and wanted it for himself. So you were internally filled with violence. This is arrogance in the soul. And you sin. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. Therefore, I brought fire from the midst of you and has consumed you, and I have turned you to ashes on the earth in the eyes of all who see you. Now, let's turn from there over to Isaiah chapter 14 and just put these passages together. What we see in this creature is arrogance, independence. He, there is a lack of humility and a lack of fulfilling his role as a servant in his priestly function to the angelic order of creatures. So he's arrogant, he's independent, he lacks a servant attitude, he lacks grace orientation and humility. We see another portrayal of this in Isaiah chapter 14, beginning in verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. Now the term there, star of the morning, it's the King James translated that or transliterated that from a Latin word for lux, for light. Uh, Lucifer, uh, New American Standard translators chose to translate it star of the morning, but this is a reference to Lucifer as he was called before he fell. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, mental attitude sins, this is how it began, the five I wills of Satan. I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. The term stars of God is a name for the angels. He wanted to rule and reign over the angels. I will sit on the Mount of Assembly. This is the position of authority, of God's authority, the place of his throne. I will sit on the Mount of Assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. Clouds is another metaphorical term used in the Old Testament to refer to the angelic creatures. And I will make myself like the Most High. So Satan makes this assertion of independence that he is going to become as God 
And as God, He wants to rule and reign over all the creation and thinks that He can perform that task as well as God can. However, what we see is the value system of this rebellious creature is based upon arrogance and a self-serving attitude as opposed to a serving attitude based upon humility and grace orientation. So he is going to claim that in opposition to God, he can rule, but on a system of arrogant values, and that he can rule the creation just as well as God can. So there is a contrast here between humility and arrogance, between being a servant and being self-centered. Over in the, so we make these two columns. In the column in terms of God's values, humility, service, grace orientation. And of course, humil- all of this is necessary or prerequisites to love as described in the Scriptures. So you do not have any of this under Satan's system. This is the contrast. Now, God held a trial. This took place in eternity past. Let's look at the order of creation. First of all, God created the angels. They were not divided. Job 38 tells us that the angels, all the sons of God, another title for angels, all the sons of God shouted for joy in unison. So at that point, there's no division when God lays the foundation of the earth. So the angels were there when he created the earth, and he creates the universe. And the Old Testament in Genesis 1.1 uses a figure of speech called a merism, which is taking contrast like light and darkness, night and day, high and low, heaven and earth. There is no word in Hebrew for universe. You can only describe it in terms of a merism like this. God created the heavens and the earth. Now, this does not mean, when we think of the heavens, we think of bodies of light within the heavens, which we call stars. But the stars are not created until the fourth day of the restoration. So we have in Genesis 1.1, the creation of of the heavens and the earth, which is the space-time continuum. The heavens describes the location. The Lord stretches out the heavens. It's like a huge box because the heavens are finite. They are not infinite. The heavens, the universe is finite. And God builds this space in which everything else can go. Now, the Genesis 1-1 universe was not anything like the Genesis 1-2 and following universe. Just as the pre-Noahic flood earth, the antediluvian earth and its geology, its meteorology, its zoology... Its botany and biology was vastly different from that which was subsequent to the flood. It changed radically. In fact, if you and I I were to get in a time machine and be miraculously transported back to just after the fall, and we looked at the earth at that time, it would 
we would think we were on another planet. It did not function the same. There was a, a cloud cover over the entire earth or a water vapor canopy of some sort. There was a universal temperature. There was no rain. There were, if, if there were winds, they were very, very light. You did not have a precipitation cycle like we have today. There, that's why there was no rainbow prior to the flood. There was no rain. There was a, just a universal temperature, and we're told that the earth was watered from the mists of the deep. Some sort of a, uh, some sort of evaporation due mechanism, but there was no rain. We're also told that out of the Garden of Eden flowed four rivers. There was one river that diverged into four rivers. Now, what we see on the earth today is places where rivers converge, come together to form one river, but we do not see any place on the earth where one river becomes four. So it's a vastly different universe. All of the animals were gramnivorous at creation. It was only after the flood or the fall that they began to change. The argument I'm making is that the universe prior to Genesis 1-2 was not what we think of as the universe. This is the space-time continuum, and there was one planet we know for sure, and that was Earth. And this was the specific domain and operating arena of Lucifer, that was part of his responsibilities, and he fell. And as a result of his fall, there was a judgment on the earth. Uh, it, Genesis 1-2 says that the earth became, and that is a specific form in the Hebrew, the earth became formless and void, and the word is tohu vabohu, and that terminology is used in the scripture of God's judgment. Other things indicate divine judgment on the planet as well. The earth was tohu vabohu, formless and void, and darkness. Darkness is always used in the scripture to represent sin and judgment and evil. If you turn from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, in the future earth there will be no darkness. Furthermore, it says darkness was over the surface of the tahom, the deep. The waters, the earth was covered in water. And water also, the turbulent, uncontrolled water, is also a picture of chaos and of sin. And there are no oceans in the future uh, kingdom of earth. So all the imagery here uh, speaks of sin and judgment. What causes that judgment? What causes that judgment is that God has held a trial in the heavenlies for Satan. And when he fell, he took, when Lucifer fell, he took one-third of the angels with him. Now, he receives a new title after this. In the Hebrew, it is Shatan, S-H-A-T-A-N. And in the Greek, it is Diabolos, D-I-A-B-O-L-O-S. And both of these mean accuser, are adversary. They're words that are used in a legal context of a defense attorney or a prosecutor. Now, what we see in this imagery here, and the fact that in Matthew we are told that that uh, the Jesus says, "Depart to the lake of fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels." That the lake of fire has already been set up. This was their place of condemnation and punishment. It's already created. Well, they're not there. 
they're not sent there until Revelation chapter 20. Well, if they're not there yet, what is it that causes this postponement of the carrying out of their sentence? It is an appeal on the part of Satan. Now, we don't know exactly what this appeal was. There are various uh, theological conjectures that are set forth. One is that Satan challenged the character of God. How can a loving God send his creatures to the lake of fire? A second is, how can you do this without giving me a fair opportunity to carry out my desire of ruling and reigning over the creation to prove that I can do as good a job as you? So Satan challenges God to give him the opportunity to fulfill his desire, and God determines to allow an experiment, an experiment on planet Earth. Now, we think of an experiment sometimes in the sense that we're going to see what, what's going to happen. We're going to go into the laboratory and we're going to uh, conduct an experiment and see what the results are. That's one sense of the word experiment. But the most common meaning of the word experiment is to demonstrate a known truth. See, before a scientist goes in the laboratory and starts mixing chemicals together and, and starts conducting this experiment, he has already worked out all of the formulae ahead of time. He knows what will happen, or he's pretty sure of what will happen, and he is conducting the experiment in order to demonstrate what he believes is the truth. So an experiment is to demonstrate a known truth, and God is going to give Satan the opportunity to carry out his will and to see if he can control the creation, but to experiment is going to demonstrate the known truth that only God has the ability to govern creation, and it must be conducted on his rules and on his principles. And his rules and principles demand humility, grace orientation, servanthood, and love. These are the ultimate values in God's world and God's creation. And they are specifically in contrast to the world's way of thinking, which is basically Satan's way of thinking. Human viewpoint and cosmic thinking are virtually synonymous. So there's going to be an experiment, and God is going to create a creature lower than the angels, and he is going to put this puny little biped down on planet Earth, the scene of Satan's rebellion, in order to demonstrate this known truth. Now, the, the angels would look at mankind and they would say, this puny little creature does not have near the power or the capability that we have. How is he going to do this? And God is going to demonstrate through mankind that only on the basis of living in his value system is man going to be able to achieve honor and glory. That honor and glory for the creature comes only as a result of honor and glory to the Creator. There is no way to achieve it directly. So mankind is placed in the Garden of Eden and they fail. But in their failure, God has the opportunity to demonstrate His grace and He provides a promise of a future redemption solution. And then God is going to come along and just blow the minds of the angels because He is going to demonstrate in light of the satanic charge, remember, as the accuser, as the, uh, as acting as His defense attorney, 
Satan has accused and impugned the integrity of the Supreme Court, the judge on the high bench. And he has said, how can a righteous and loving God do this? And so God is going to demonstrate that in his righteousness and justice, he is going to provide the perfect solution, which is initiated by his love and expressed in grace. And it is going to take place because the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, is going to take on flesh and become one of these low bipedal creatures on planet Earth. He is going to become a man. And he is going to, as a man, live on the Earth, face all of the problems that mankind faces, and handle all of these problems and all of these difficulties and all of these temptations on the basis of the value system of God. And he is going to have victory in his life over all of these things, demonstrating his perfection and his impeccability. And then he is going to go to the cross where, as an expression of the grace of God, he is going to take upon himself the penalty for all the sins of the world, thus demonstrating at its highest the value system of God in humility as expressed in Philippians chapter 2, that he humbled himself to the point of death by becoming a servant. Now, let's, let's go there. Let's turn to Philippians 2 and see how that pulls it together in terms of the value system exemplified by Jesus Christ. We are mandated to have this thinking, not just this attitude, but have this thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus who although he existed in the morphe, that is the inner essence of God, the form of God, the inner essence of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now set that over against what Satan did, what Lucifer did. He wanted to be like God. Yet here is Jesus Christ who was willing to forego his, the free and independent exercise of his divine attributes in order to become a creature. So in contrast to the self-centered arrogance of the, of the angelic rebel, the second person of the Trinity disregards his position and empties himself. That is, he willingly limits himself, kanao uh, in the Greek, which does not mean to give up the attributes, but it means to willingly restrict the attributes. For he, if he gave it up, he would no longer be God. And when he was incarnate on the earth in hypostatic union, he was fully God. He was true humanity and undiminished deity united together in one person forever. He limited himself, taking on the form of a bond servant. Once again, that's inner essence. Jesus said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. He takes on the form, Morphe again, the inner essence of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness, this is schema, the outer likeness, the outer appearance of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As a result of his humility and giving up, he is then exalted to the highest place in heaven. Now, make that contrast with mankind. Man is created lower than the angels, but those who are believers who operate on the principles of God's plan and accept God's plan for their life 
will be elevated above the angels. The path to glorification is through humility and dependence upon God and submission to his plan. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Now, all of this is to set sort of a broad picture for you of the, why the mechanics of Galatians chapter 5 are so crucial for us. Because you see, God has a plan for the believer. And that plan is going to eventually culminate in an evaluation judgment that takes place at what the Scripture calls the Bema Seat of Jesus Christ. We are saved, phase one salvation. We enter into a new life. And in that new life, the issue is, are we going to operate on God's principles or are we going to continue to operate on the world's principles on human viewpoint, energized by the flesh. It's either the sin nature control or Holy Spirit control. If we operate on Holy Spirit control under the filling of the Spirit, we learn doctrine. We go through various tests or examinations in life to see if we are going to apply the doctrine that we learn. If we stay in fellowship and we apply doctrine, we go through this cycle uh, described in the flow chart up here, which leads to spiritual maturity. When we die and we're face to face with the Lord, and then after the rapture at the judgment seat of Christ, those who are successful believers and who have advanced will receive rewards and an inheritance. Those who fail the test, who do not learn doctrine, who do not make doctrine the priority in their life, and the application of doctrine a priority in their life, will stay under sin nature control. They will have a life characterized by sin, human good, temporal or carnal death, Weakness and instability, they will have spiritual regression and a hardened heart. And when they die and are face to face with the Lord at the judgment seat or the evaluation seat of Christ, then they will lose rewards and there will be temporary shame at the judgment seat of Christ. That's why in Galatians 5, when after um, Paul talks about sin nature control, he says those who continue to practice these things will not inherit the kingdom. This is the realm of non-inheritance. You will be in the kingdom, but not an heir or possessor of the kingdom. So we will have to go through a detailed study of inheritance and what that involves. Those who are successful are rewarded, and we are possessors and heirs, and we will rule and reign with Jesus Christ. Because in the overall scheme, what God is doing is preparing a people in the heavenlies who will rule and reign with him in demonstration of the falsity of Satan's whole hypothesis. So God is conducting this experiment in time, in this little blip on the screen of all eternity. God is conducting an experiment to demonstrate for all time and eternity before all creatures that only by living a life on the basis of God's plan, orientation to the authority of God, orientation to His plan, orientation to grace, orientation to doctrine, only on that basis exemplified in humility, serving one another in love, can the creature be glorified forever and ever. And it is done as a side effect of first glorifying God. So we must 
If we are going to glorify God, we must first advance to spiritual maturity. That's what this is all about. That's why this is so important. The the spiritual life is not just, oh boy, now I'm going to go to heaven and I'm not going to roast and toast for all eternity, which is the way most people want to take it. They would rather live in the slums of heaven. They're just going to be glad they're there. Well, people who have that attitude are going to live in the slums of heaven, and they won't have the same capacity. They won't have the same privileges. They won't have many things that those who have advanced to spiritual maturity will have. They will not have the rewards. They will not have the benefits. They will still have a resurrection body. They will still have maximum happiness. There will still be no more sorrow, no more tears, no more pain for the old things are passed away. But they will not have what could have been theirs. You see, in eternity past, when God first set forth this plan, God set forth a number of blessings that God was, that He was going to give to every believer. These blessings were blessings in time and blessings for eternity. But they are all contingent. They are not works. They are contingent upon your maturity. God is not going to bestow these blessings upon you if you do not have the maturity to handle them. In the same way that you are not going to give a brand new Maserati to a six-year-old. He doesn't have the maturity or the capacity to handle it. You're not going to give it to a 15-year-old. You're going to wait till they're old enough and mature enough in order to use it wisely and responsibly. So God has determined what blessings are ours in eternity past. The issue is, are you going to advance to spiritual maturity so that you can then uh, responsibly operate on those blessings and not let those blessings destroy your life? Or are you going to wallow around in sin nature control, wallow around like the prodigal son, spending your inheritance and living, ending up in the pigsty, are you going to advance to spiritual maturity and experience in time your blessings and then in eternity the blessings that will come as rewards and inheritance? That's the framework. The issue is, in Galatians 5.13, that God has called us to freedom. We are free from sin nature control. We do not have to obey the desires and lusts of the flesh. As overwhelming as those desires may be at times, as controlling as they may be at times, because we have, from childhood, followed certain habit patterns that follow the trends and lust patterns of our own particular sin nature, we have 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years or so uh, following these habit patterns, and we have to break them. And they are breakable only under the power of God the Holy Spirit through the application of doctrine. And the principle here is that we have all been called to spiritual freedom. God has given this to us as part of the package that we receive at the moment of salvation. So Paul says in verse 13, For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the sin nature. You see, liberty is not license. See, this is the problem that so many people have. As soon as they think that, well, Christ has paid the penalty for all my sins, then it really doesn't matter what I do because Christ has already paid that penalty 
so I'm going to go out and really enjoy life and party my way through life, and it really doesn't matter because Christ paid the penalty. Well, that's right. Christ paid the penalty, number one, in terms of spiritual death, which is the eternal penalty for sin. Separation from God for all eternity. And Christ paid that penalty on the cross during those three hours between noon and 3 p.m. when the skies were darkened and God the Father imputed to him all the sins of human history. And at the moment that we are, are saved, that is applied to us through retroactive positional truth, and we are identified with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection so that the sin nature is crucified with Christ. And this is what Paul ends up with down in verse 24. Now, those who belong to Christ have crucified the sin nature with its passions and desires. But this is positional. And it is the basis for our freedom that now we have an option which we did not have before. And that option is going to be to walk by means of God the Holy Spirit. So spiritual death was paid for at the cross. And on the basis of that, we have uh, positional freedom. If we follow the flesh, we will be involved in what the Bible calls carnality, and that produces carnal death or temporal death, which is the result of following the lusts of the sin nature, according to James chapter 1. When sin conceives, it brings forth death. So Paul says, For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. You see, just because Christ paid that penalty of spiritual death does not mean that there are no consequences in time. The consequences in time are called, or is called divine, the consequences is divine discipline. God the Father loves us, and He will take us to the woodshed, and He will do whatever is necessary in order to uh, punish us for those sins under two laws. First of all, the law of reaping and sowing, which we will get to down in Galatians chapter five, or 6, verse 7. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows. This he will also reap. This is uh, the law of divine discipline. And then the law of volitional responsibility here, that certain acts are going to entail certain consequences. And that's built into the system. And then secondly, God will, on top of that, pile divine discipline, extra punitive action, in order to get our attention to move us back into obedience. Now, we might use the same word, punishment, to describe what happened to Jesus Christ on the cross and what happens here under divine discipline. This is where some confusion comes in for some people. And they think, well, if we've been punished once, how can we be punished again? There are two different categories. Category number one is spiritual death. That was handled by Christ on the cross, and that has to do with the eternal consequences of sin. But divine discipline is category number two, and that is punishment in time, the consequences of disobedience to the Creator in time. That that will entail certain negative consequences. So Paul enjoins us, 
Do not operate on licentiousness. Do not think that just because your sins have been paid for by Christ on the cross that now you can just go live like the devil and just have a, just a hell of a time on earth and not suffer any consequences. What is the opposite? The opposite is, but through love, serve one another. What's interesting here is the connections that Paul brings together here in opposition to licentiousness, which is self-centeredness. He brings forth the mandate to love, which is not self-centered. Now, part of the problem here is that most people, especially, especially most Americans, do not understand love. We think of love in terms of emotion. We think of love in terms of romantic ideals. We think of love in terms of sentimentality. But that is not how the Bible thinks of love. Man is made up in his soul of different aspects. He has self-consciousness, which means that when he looks in the mirror, he knows who he is. He has identity. He is an individual with, with certain attributes. Secondly, he has a mentality. He can think. This is the center of intellection and cognition in the soul. This should be the initiator. He has emotion. This is the responding element in the soul. It responds to what's taking place in the cognitive center. Now, what happens is sometimes we get turned around and we start reacting emotionally and the emotion starts driving what's going on in the mentality. We call that emotional revolt. This is when people get all caught up in emotionalism and start making decisions based upon sentimentality and emotion or anger or bitterness or any, any of the other emotional sins. And it, the results of that totally destroy life. We have to initiate with the mind, respond with emotion. And emotion is not wrong in and of itself. It's not a sin. It is very good and God designed it that way. Then we have a conscience. This is the center of the value system in the soul, the norms and standards. And we have a volition, and this is the decider in the soul and the center of human responsibility, where we decide either for or against God. Now, when we think of love, we tend to think of it in terms of an emotion and a feeling. But the Bible commands it, and you can't command an emotion. You can only command something that's in the mentality of the soul. So love, when we are commanded to love one another, the first thing we realize is that this is a mental attitude. It starts with thinking according to a certain value system. Now, we have spent a lot of time on Wednesday night studying the concept of impersonal or unconditional love, and we need to do that again here in our study of Galatians, because this is crucial to understand this concept. We're not to turn our freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love we are to serve one another. So one of the first things we see in this passage, see, one of the interesting things about Scripture is a principle called progressive revelation. What progressive revelation means is that God does, did not historically dump everything at one time on the first man. God did not give us a systematic theology. 
He gave us the Bible. It was written in terms of narrative, stories, people's lives, how God interacted with them, so that as time went by, God revealed more and more things about Himself, so that we live in an era in history when God has completed His revelation, and He has given us everything. But you don't find everything in the Bible categorized. That's up to us. We go through and we categorize the Scriptures, and we look and we compare Scripture with Scripture and classify them according to the subject matter. And each passage that refers to love tells us a little more, adds a facet to love that may not be in another passage. And what we see in this passage is this emphasis on serving one another. That this is a function of love. It is not, as we have seen and as we're going to see in the development of this study, it is not simply the absence of mental attitude sins. It is not simply not harboring jealousy, envy, bitterness, anger, hostility towards someone else. But there is something very positive about loving one another. Now, this can't be an emotion because we all know that there are certain believers that we really can't stand. And there's nothing wrong with admitting that. That's human nature. There are just some personality types that we don't get along with. There are some people that we just don't enjoy being around. We don't have anything in common with them. We can't find anything to talk about other than doctrine at some points. And with a lot of believers, you can't talk about that because they don't know any. So there are just a lot of believers out there that you don't have any natural affinity for whatsoever. So at that point, we have to kick in impersonal love. But impersonal love doesn't just mean live and let live. It doesn't just mean, well, I'm going to love them from afar. Because unfortunately, some of these people work at a desk next to us. They sit at the other end of the pew from us. Now, don't look around. They are, at times, married to us. They are our children. Some of you are saying they're my parents. They're other people who, with whom we cannot escape. They are closely entwined in our sphere of existence. And they are the opportunity that God has given us to advance to spiritual maturity by learning the principle through love, serve one another. And the basis for this is not in the other person. That's our problem. We want to think of love in terms of attraction in the object of love. When we make the statement, I love you, we have a subject, a verb, and an object. Now, when we put the emphasis on the attraction, the approbation, the beauty of the object, that's what we call personal love. Because we have a personal knowledge of the, of the individual. We have a personal attraction for that individual. We have a personal affinity for that individual. But when we don't know that person, 
when they are a stranger, when we do not particularly like that person because of whatever it may be in their personality or their background, then we can't love them because of who and what they are. We have to love them on the basis of our own character, which is not our character, but the character of Christ. Christ formed in you. That is why loving one another as a mandate to the believer is not something that you are going to master as a spiritual infant. This is why this exemplifies spiritual maturity because it demands a tremendous knowledge of God. In fact, it is preceded by personal love for God, which is the motivation, because for love to have any significance, it has to be based upon integrity and it has to be based upon virtue. Love is virtue-dependent. And we don't have that in us. It is ours only to the degree that Christ's character is formed in us. We are going to be able to love the unlovely, love those we don't like, only because of who God is and what Christ has done for us. The more we become aware and our mental attitude is oriented to the person of God and the work of Christ, the more we are going to be able to fulfill this mandate. But when we're not oriented to grace, number one, when we're not oriented to doctrine, number two, then we, and we do not have a personal love for God the Father, three, then we're not going to be able to fulfill the mandate to love one another. And here we see that loving one another is exemplified by serving one another. Now, I want to say something about this phrase, one another, as we close. Alelus. Now, A-L-L-E-L-O-U-S. Now, one of the things about this is that it's real easy to put yourself under a guilt trip. One another obviously would include any and all believers. We're to love all the brethren. This is a sign of the Jesus Christ said that by this all men will know that you are my disciples because you love one another. But there are different spheres of our environment. There are different spheres of intimacy, let's say, with other people. There are those within our immediate family. There are those that we would call close friends. And we can number them usually on one hand with a finger or two left over. There are those who we are a little bit more intimate with, but they are just classified, let's say, as good friends. Then there are acquaintances and business associates and other people. Now, we have to look at at one another, we can't serve everyone. This is not saying, through love, serve everyone. That's impossible. We cannot love everyone in the same way to the same degree because we have limited resources. So don't put yourself under a guilt trip and try to run out and take care of every single person that comes down the road in the same way. What this is talking about is that whenever here you are, why for you? And there's your circle of activity. God is going to bring certain people and certain opportunities inside that sphere. You've got to exercise, we'll talk about this a little more, but we've got to exercise some discernment. Because we, like as I said, we have limited resources. 
So some were going to fulfill this mandate at a higher level than others. We have to use wisdom and discernment in making those choices based upon a priority system. But whether we serve to a greater level, let's put a G here, or a lesser level, the attitude of impersonal or unconditional love remains the same. We do not have unlimited resources to give, to love, to pray for everyone. But we are to have this underlying attitude so that when God gives us the opportunity, depending on the resources that God has given us to meet the need at that point in time, then we are willing to utilize whatever we have in wisdom and discernment based on the doctrine that God has given us and that we have in our soul. Now, next time we'll come back and we'll look at verse 14 where we see the mandate quoted from Leviticus 19.18, which is the royal law or termed the royal law in James chapter 2, and we will put that together with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at your word today and to see the panorama of your plan and how it works and how all of these mandates work together in taking us to spiritual maturity, Father. We realize the importance of spiritual maturity because it is only then that we can glorify you to the maximum and glorify you in the appeal trial of Satan. So, Father, we pray that as we study these things, you would help us to see how they apply in our lives and be willing to adjust our thinking and adjust our application. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is not sure of their eternal destiny, that they would realize the issue right now, that it is faith alone in Christ alone. All that you require is that we believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior. You have done all the work. We do nothing. We simply accept it as a free gift. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us to remember these things and think about them in the coming week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.